the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to do so once again with our dear friend Brandon Weikert. Brandon J. Weikert is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He's the author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Also, most recently, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He's a senior editor at 1945.com, among many other things. You can follow him on Twitter. At we the Brandon. Brandon, thanks for being with us. We missed you last week because of Labor Day, but it's uh, yeah. it's good to have you back, sir. It is. It is. We observed the communist holiday. We have said yes. Well, speaking of enemies <laughs> of Americanism, uh, we've spent most of our day here today commemorating nine eleven. I saw your very mm-hmm. important piece over at 1945.com. That's the way to access it easy enough. 1945.com titled 9-11 at 22 from We Will Never Forget to We Will Never Learn. That is indeed, um, you you walk us through a lot of things that uh, brought back a lot of memories for me, I'll tell you. Hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? Hello? Yep. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Did I lose you? I think I lost you. You there? I'm here. Are we on mute? It was weird. The whole thing went out. Oh, are we back now? Yeah, I hear you now. Okay, odd. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, I was (laughs) reading your column in 1945, and you said after 9-11, we said that we would never forget. Unfortunately, we're proving that we'll never learn. There were so many errors that were made, so many grave mistakes that were made leading up to it. Some people got it right, um, some people got it very, very wrong, and some people were just callous. Mm-hmm. I w- yeah, I, I'll have you walk us through what you said and wrote in your piece, but I was reminded when you were writing in it and brought up that we were all kind of celebrating the end of history. I remember Francis Fukuyama's book. It had no mention of the rise of Islamism in it. No. And I remember debating uh, friends in grad school at the time where I was when it came out, that this was the next threat, and they were poo-pooing it. There's this, there's this um, unique American tendency to want to kind of be blind to threats to us. Anyway, I'm filibustering. You talk to us about what you were getting at. Well, um, you remember um, Francis Fukuyama's uh, mentor, uh, Sam Huntington, yep. wrote the antithesis to the end of history, in which he did predict yep. quite accurately that Islam's bloody borders would become a big problem in the near future. And, of course, not very long after, it it was a severe problem. Um, We in the United States, um, for whatever reason, this seems to be a a continual theme where we want to bury our heads in the sand, if you'll pardon the pun, um, because we just get through a major conflict. Even the Cold War, which although, I mean, we had certainly sort of um, conflicts related to it, like Vietnam, Korea, um, we never actually, thankfully, fought the Soviets in World War III, which was the fear. 
Um, and so uh, we nevertheless came out of that conflict as war-weary as we did uh, out of the two world wars, which are actual kinetic fights. Um, and so we sought to sort of go on what my mentor, Mac Owens, calls a strategic holiday. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of the era of happy talk yep. and good feelings. Right. Um, and all the meanwhile, though, um, bin Laden in particular and his organization, Al-Qaeda, as I outline in the, uh, in the, in the, the article I did memorializing 9-11, um, bin Laden had a very clear-eyed objective. And to make matters worse for us, he was very open and explicit with the international media about that which he intended to do. Mm-hmm. And even after multiple terror attacks against our embassies overseas, against the USS Cole, um, you know, we even at one point we captured, uh, related to the USS Cole, Yemen uh, intelligence had captured one of the cousins of who would become one of the 9-11 hijackers, and had the FBI been allowed to interrogate him, we probably would have uncovered the, the 9-11 plot and been able to stop it. That's one of the conclusions of Lawrence Wright's great book, The Looming Tower. Of course, that's speculative. But the point that I'm making is we had this thing in our psyche in the 90s where we had elements of our security apparatus that were keenly aware of bin Laden and al-Qaeda and the threat they posed, but by and large, the entirety, the comprehensive system, both of, of bureaucrats and, uh, and elected officials from both parties, nobody wanted to take it seriously in a comprehensive way that would have allowed us to avoid 9-11. And as I note in the piece, that same kind of thinking today is happening. Um, and in fact, in many cases, as it relates to China, and in fact, in many cases, the same people who were running our security services and who were in office before and during 9-11 are the same people leading us today. And so we should be expecting similarly disastrous results only with a new threat now. There's so much in what you said. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an, yes, we were living, I think Charles Krauthammer's pregnant phrase was at the time we were in a holiday from history. You know, he yeah. kind of traced the trajectory as, as a lot of people did, but not enough, most of them outside the government, like he, they were tracing the trajectory of basically the first World Trade Center, 93, forward. Right. They had the first World Trade Center, then you had the Kobar Towers, then you had the uh, African embassies, then you had and the yeah. USS yep. Cole. And we just didn't do very much about it. We had, I no. think, two fatwas from bin Laden, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And... and and on that morning, I think you pointed it out, or someone did, if it wasn't you, others have. I think you did. On that morning, George Tenet, the director of the CIA, knew it was al-Qaeda yes. or bin Laden. Uh, I remember talking to Andrew C. McCarthy the next day. He yes. knew it was al-Qaeda and bin Laden. Enough yes. people knew that you know, yes. they, they, Absolutely. They, the FBI and the CIA were more engaged in turf wars, it seemed like. Uh, yes. There were dismissals here in Arizona of FBI agents reporting odd flight trainings that were taking mm-hmm. place with Muslim Americans, where all they cared about was learning how to take off and not to land. Yes, it was yes. it was a willful blindness of of of, of many and, sorts. Yes. It seemed like. Yes, and that's Andy McCarthy's famous right. phrase, and right. he's he's correct. Um, and I would also add that I actually, and I I made an allusion to it in the article because you see the article I sat down to write, I ended up. Became, became something very different from what I planned to write. 
but I make an allusion to the original thing I was planning to write, which is that, in particular, CIA knew much, much more about not just al-Qaeda, but about the specific 9-11 plot than what they have admitted to in uh, congressional hearings. Um, And, for instance, there is an airport about 20 minutes north of me in Venice Beach, Florida, uh, in which the CIA, as well as the DEA, but in this case the CIA, owns large sections of this airport. It's a private commuter port, and that is the airport where uh, four of the 9-11 hijackers, after they came into the country through LAX in California and were settled in California for about a year by a Saudi consulate operative, um, they were then transitioned over to Venice Beach, Florida, where they were being taught how to take off a plane and fly a plane, but not to land it. And, in fact, there was a wealthy Saudi family in Venice Beach, Sarasota area, um, who the, the, the patriarch, he was Saudi Arabia family, the patriarch was actually a very close friend of George H.W. Bush's, and he was apparently, according to my research, I've spoken to people in Sarasota who are aware of this, this guy was apparently funding these four soon-to-be 9-11 hijackers to live in Sarasota area. And four days, 96 hours before 9-11 occurred, that entire Saudi family packed up in the dead of night, left warm dishes on the table, and they were scuttled out of town in a black suburban. So there was something more going on. We know that CIA tracked. These four guys from uh, Europe to Malaysia, where in the summer of 2000, they basically went to a terrorist confab. And from Malaysia, they flew directly to LAX. And then that was setting them on the trajectory to ultimately crashing planes in the 9-11. Something was going on. I think there was a covert operation to keep tabs and try to basically stop al-Qaeda at the last minute and soak up as much information. And I think it went awry. No, let me, let me, let me take the break and pick up on some of that with yeah. you, too, because there were other warning signs, even much more public than that. Brandon Weikert is our guest, and um, you've got to read his piece over at 1945.com, where he is senior editor, if you want to take a trip down the things we knew and the things we ignored uh, leading up to... Um, this morning, uh, 22 years ago. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Brandon Weikert is our guest, author, uh, writer, senior editor at 1945.com. Follow him on Twitter at WeTheBrandon. We're talking about his piece on uh, never forgetting and never learning over at 1945.com. You know, there was a... um, there was a lot of public information, too, that uh, that we could have accessed, Brandon. I remember the story of um, of uh, the head of the Northern Alliance, Ahmed Shah Massoud, Lana Panjir, I think he was called. Exactly and, right. Right. His death was printed in the New York Times on September uh, 9th, I believe it was, yes. a couple days. Ninth, yeah. And no one, no one gave a damn. Uh, this, this was such a telling thing. I was trying to explain it to the audience. You tell me if I have it wrong. But he was blown up by agents of, um, of bin Laden's and the Taliban in a suicide bombing effort because he was leading the effort against the Taliban. And clearly it would have been known by al-Qaeda and the Taliban that once they carried out 
uh, Masood would have been our key person on the ground in our efforts to retaliate or um, or or remove uh, Al Qaeda yeah. and the Taliban, and they got rid of. They took they cut off the well, head of and, our best response right, on the ground. And and further, yeah, and furthermore, he was going to be the head of a new government right. if we. And the whole thing with Masood is basically think of how the communists viewed Castro or better yet, the Vietnamese viewed, North Vietnamese, viewed Ho Chi Minh as sort of this dear leader that they would go into the depths of, you know, Armageddon for. That's how the, um, the elements of Afghanistan viewed Massoud, even though he was not of the predominant Pashtun alliance, which right. was mostly loyal to the Taliban. Right. Um, he had immense amount of respect among the other ethno-religious subgroups right. within Afghanistan, and he had an immense amount of legitimacy also, even in the eyes of his enemies in Afghanistan, because his martial prowess was so legendary, yep. matched anything that al-Qaeda and the Taliban had. So, yes, he had a great deal of legitimacy. They murdered him because, as I note in the piece, Seth, there was a real strategy to bin Laden. Say what you will about bin Laden, but he was a master ta- strategist as well as a tactician. But his strategy was very, 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 very good in that he knocked out a potential rival because he understood that once 9-11 happened, right. the Americans were going to invade. Right. And so he had to dismantle our ability to effectively destroy him and overthrow his Taliban allies as possible. And that meant taking out Massoud, the most legitimate alternative to the Taliban. You know, one of the reasons I uh, think it's important to listen to you and people like you, not that there are a lot of them, Brandon, is because in years prior to 9-11, people like Steve Emerson and Daniel Pipes were writing yep. pieces with titles like Get Ready for 20 World Trade Center Bombings and dismissed yep. as ridiculous. Uh, people like yep. Rick Rascorla, whom whose story you know, who I share with the audience every every year this time. They dismissed him as paranoid. You know, um, that right. there were there were people that could mm. see around the corner. Jim Woolsey was out of the government at that point, but he was warning of these things. Well, they do the same thing with me about China. Uh, well, today. that's what I'm saying. And this is why yeah. I think it's so important to listen to people like you who understand not only ideology, but understand that ideology wedded to arms is a mortal threat to the United it States. And we dismiss yeah. it and coddle it. Today, Joe Biden gives a speech, Brandon, from Alaska, talking about how we will never rest in our fight against terrorism. On the very day they finalized the $6 billion transfer yeah. to Iran, the leading state sponsor yeah, of terror, of course. we are not serious. No, no. And furthermore, there was a viral video of uh, Biden in Vietnam a few days ago yeah. kneeling down and kissing what they said was the memorial to John McCain. In fact, I just tweeted a guy uh, who's been to that memorial, and I'm aware of this memorial as well. That is a memorial commemorating the capture right. of McCain. Right. Not the, right. that, that there's, you know, there was no love there. And so, you know, Biden, again, kneeling down and kissing our enemies, even as he's pushing away all of our friends. Um, on 9-11, of course, what, what a time. Um, and this is, you know, this is the kind of, of airy thinking that I was talking about. This is the kind of, and I, I'm bringing it back an old term, uh, pre-9-11 mentality that just dominates the Democratic Party and, unfortunately now, sections of the Republican Party as well. Yep. Um, and, you know, 
whether we're talking about this or we're talking about what the CIA was doing, the fact of the matter is elements of our government, Alex Station at CIA, John was it John Sullivan, I think was his name. John O'Neill. John O'Neill. John O'Neill. John O'Neill. Yeah. John O'Neill. Yeah. Irish. I knew he was Irish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, then you had DIA, Tony Schaefer, right. and the uh, Able Danger element. We had key elements of our in- Richard Clark at the mm-hmm. White House. Key elements of our of our bureaucracy were attenuated to Al Qaeda, but they were being prevented by the political leadership and the top layer of intelligence leaders from acting decisively, which is why I said in the previous section, I think that what the CIA was trying to do was trying to let al-Qaeda operationalize their 9-11 plot so they could figure out what the operational plan was, and then they were planning to swoop in at the last minute. But I think for whatever reason, Something went awry. I do not think, and I want to make it clear, because I was not saying that it was an inside job. I think the CIA was keenly aware, though, that bin Laden was going to do something in the fall of 01, and they were trying to basically insinuate themselves so they could prevent it at the last minute and gain actionable intelligence in the process. But the whole thing went, as it so often does in the intelligence world, it went uh, breasts up, as we say. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's what I think. Well, it's, 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 it's probably a combination of several factors because these are big operations, or at least big, big institutions. A lot of us at the time were worrying about whether the CIA was so degraded in its ability to have intelligence because of the reforms that were in instituted uh, under, uh, was yeah, it Stanisfield Turner, I think, maybe? Uh, uh, some, some, yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and also, and, don't forget the Jamie Gorelick bureaucratic And the Jamie Gorelick wall between communicating with yes. the CIA and the FBI. There was that. Um, and then there was this other thing. that That's all the government stuff, but there was a media uh, that, that presented a problem, too, the kind of media that always thought Steve Emerson was a nut or Daniel Pipes was a nut or, you know, uh, Charles Krauthammer was a nut. Yep. There, there was that. You know, I remember I, I wrote a book on, on that covered some of this uh, a few years back. And one of the most amazing things, you remember Anwar al-Awlaki? Um, he yes. yes. So in the days after 9-11, he was the go-to moderate Muslim that NPR and PBS were interviewing People don't remember this. You know, right after 9-11, most of this country didn't know much about the Middle East. They knew less about Islam. So this country kind of went on a huge learning curve or tried to. It bought all these books and Bernard Lewis became a well-known name again and all that sort of thing. And Anwar Awlaki was the go-to guy for NPR and PBS trying to explain how this isn't all of Islam and this isn't a big threat. And let me take a break and pick up on that with you when we come back. The media wanting to really kind of turn it against the United States in an odd way and making misjudgments about who they should have been listening to and who they shouldn't. Brandon Weikert and I will cover that aspect of this when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, author of several books, uh, including um, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy, senior senior editor at 1945.com. You know, the media had a role here, too, Brandon. Um, I was telling you just before we were revisiting right before the break how they were listening to a lot of the wrong voices. Anwar al-Awlaki was kind of their go-to expert. They should have been listening to Zudi Jasser more, but they were listening to Al-Awlaki, who became the counselor to Nadal Hassan, 
who blew yeah. who shot up Fort Hood, and people, you know, reported Nadal Hassan after the fact was mouthing the blatherings of the Al Qaeda perspective of Islam, but no one was a no one wanted to say anything. No one wanted to report him to the higher ups because they'd afraid right. they were afraid they'd look like they would be biased or that they would be bigoted. So everyone just kind of bit their tongue and thought, well better not to say anything. Um, there, there, there was this exquisite coddling of the terrorist mentality in this country, too. This is after 9-11, but it led to other terrorist incidents. It did, and actually a fun little fact about good old Anwar al is that he was the cleric in California. Yeah. I mentioned those, those right. four right. Um, uh, 9-11 hijackers right. that were... And then the Saudi consulate agent, who I am convinced is a Saudi intelligence operative, uh, was basically integrating them into the wider Muslim community in that area of California, who was the cleric that he took them to see, none other than Anwar al-Awlaki. So Anwar al-Awlaki, in some ways, is the forgotten 21st man of the 9-11 plot. Right. That that's right. That's right. And 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 so we look back on this sort of thing. And I remember, um, you know, all these fights about uh, funding of mosques in America. I remember fights about a mosque being built in Tennessee and then one near the World Trade Center. And and the mainstream media's effort was to make us look uh, as bigoted when we wanted to raise questions about, well, where's this funding coming from? What are they teaching? Right after 9-11, George Bush is president went to that main mosque in Washington, D.C. You know the it, one, it, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and Steve Emerson, uh, to, to give a talk about Islam meaning peace and most, yes. you know, all that stuff. And Emerson writes a column saying, at the bookstore, you can get yes. Mein Kampf, you can get Protocols yes. of the Elders of Zion, you can get, you know, what yes. the heck, pardon me, what the heck is Bush talking about? Well, and furthermore, I think it, if I maybe I'm confused, I thought he went to the famous uh, mosque in Falls Church, Virginia, which is known as a hotbed of Islamist um, propaganda. Well, um, well he may I'm have getting... also done that one. I'm I'm remembering the one that's there on Mass Ave. Um, okay, I know exactly what. Yeah. One. But either way, either way, there the the fact of the matter is, and this is why I say in the Shadow War in my my book on Iran, yeah. I kind of take the Republicans to task. Yep. Not just on Iran, but in general, the whole threat of Islamism, because they don't always seem to understand. Their solution is always, let's just blow it up and then go on about how the rest of Islam is peace. No, I think Sam Huntington is right. Islam has bloody borders. It is a fundamentally different culture from our own. They have different objectives and standards. Sometimes we may be able to find friends among the, a large, that large group, but by and large, culturally, their religion dictates that they be at war with us. Correct. And Correct. they are. That's right. That's right. And so what makes one wonder about it now, 22 years hence, is the general blitheness, I suppose one might say, or the general boredom or insouciance about the fact that the current president of the United States is not just releasing billions of dollars to terrorist states, but um, oversaw and proceeded to put back in power the very enemy we spent 20 years trying to wrest from power 
in Afghanistan at the cost of American lives, at the cost of allies' lives, staffing the administration of the Taliban with people we had in prison. Brandon, this is not a serious country. I don't know if we're on a holiday from history or a holiday from sanity. Um, well, I think under Biden, it's uh, we, we've taken leave of our senses, just okay. as he has. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, we also, contrary to what Jack Kirby says, we also gave billions of yep. dollars right. worth of advanced equipment, military equipment, to these savages that have spent decades, two decades, killing American troops. That's right. Um, I, was, I was listening to a podcast with one of the Marines that was at the famous Abbey Gate attack as we were leaving Kabul, and he had lost his arms and his legs. And he had said, um, he had said that, uh, you know, he was disgusted because the days before the attacks, he was ordered to basically stand side by side with Taliban troops. Hold. And, uh, you know, provide security. Hold that thought. It's it's just a miserable story. Hold that thought. Brandon Weikert, and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert has been our guest. uh, And um, we're just talking about the the pre and the during and the aftermath of 9-11. And we're talking about an administration right now that has not only humiliated our country, but humiliated those who were defending it. You were talking to a veteran, Brandon. You were telling the story who stood at Abbey Gate, who was told to uh, go to Taliban soldiers with what Bernard Lewis called anxious propitiation, the last kind of thing you want to give to our enemy to make them think that we're not serious, and they think we're not serious, right? Right, right. It was a podcast, and he was the gentleman, a Marine who had had lost his arms and legs, and he was, was talking about how a few days before the attack, him and his buddies were disgusted that they were ordered to basically stand shoulder to shoulder with Taliban, you know, dare I say, troops uh, who were up until a few days before that at active war with the United States. And it actually killed Marine Corps buddies of this guy in combat. It was, a, you know, a typical humiliating turn that the Biden administration had foisted upon our honorable men and women in uniform who have basically put it all out there only to have, you know, no thanks, no gratitude given to them by the the president of the United States. Um, And this is sort of the the indicator, not only that Biden is an unserious president, of course he is, but it's also proof positive that the Biden administration and the Democratic Party are engaged in what you and I used to call in the 2000s, pre-9-11 thinking right. that they are viewing Islamists as somehow separable from each other, mm-hmm. that we can make nice with this one group here, and that it won't have profoundly negative effects for our relations elsewhere. We don't view this enemy the way that we should, which is as one ideological uh, entity. Right. right. And, uh, you know, we're going to pay the price for it, because whether it's, uh, you know, war with Iran or, God help us, another set of of 9-11 type attacks, something very bad is coming down the pike from all this weakness that we've displayed. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because uh, you're an expert on China as well, and having had... Uh, having having had written a book about it this year, published a book on it this year, Joe Biden says in Vietnam, um, we're not about containing China. We're about having a stable base in the Indo-Pacific. We think too much in Cold War terms 
I want yeah. China to grow, and that's healthy. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I, I'm really just quite speechless because, first of all, we think too much in Cold War terms. Well, if we... China was our ally, I guess, in Cold War terms. So if we think too much in Cold War terms, he's self-refuting in the first place. But the notion that a growing and strong China is good for us would be about as asinine as saying a growing and strong Iran is good for us, which would be about as asinine as saying a growing and strong Taliban is good for us in September uh, September 10th of 2001. Well, just remember, it wasn't long after that Biden as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair and then later as vice president in that first year under Obama, Biden was saying we needed to make a deal with the Taliban. Right. And Biden was saying that the Taliban and al-Qaeda are not the same. Right. And while superficially that's true, operationally that's far from true. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, elements of the Taliban did want to negotiate. But the point is, what you're saying is accurate. And actually, you know, he does want China to do well. He does want the Taliban to do well because his policies, whether he means it or not, his policies indicate that's precisely what he wants. Do they buy into the is it is it a naivete that if we give them what they want, they'll be kind to us? Or is it that we buy into, as Tony Blair once put it, we buy into bits of the anti-American narrative that we think somehow they're not completely wrong in their condemnations of us? Because I happen to think it's more that than the former. History I, is I too— think it's, I, Yeah, go ahead. I, I think it's all of the above. Okay, okay. I think you've got— You've got this element of appeasement that is very strong on the left and on elements of the new right. You've got an element of deep anti-American, particularly from the Democrats. I mean, I, I plot this out as it relates to uh, Islamism in my book, The Shadow War. Right. I, I have multiple chapters identifying from Carter to uh, Obama to uh, now Biden, where there is this stream of thought on the part of the Democratic Party that Islamism is somehow more legitimate as a force of governance in the Middle East right. than any kind of pro-American dictator or, or monarch is. Yeah. And I, I think it's inherently because these forces are anti-American. And guess what? So is so much of the Democratic Party intelligentsia. <laughs> right. Right. I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm only partly joking when I say that. I mean, that's the only conclusion you can really seriously make is that on some level, the Democrats are rooting against the United States if the United States is up against, say, a group of brown men. And I think race and religion also play a role in this sort of anti-American, America last Well, mentality. yes. No, I mean, I, I don't think that's a stretch. It might have been a stretch 25 years ago. I don't know that it is today. When you look at the things that were discovered that bin Laden was reading, and it was, you know, the, these are Western creations in some respects. I mean, Islam isn't, but Islamism might be. I mean, it, there, there are these arcs of history where bin Laden is reading the Noam Chomsky's of the world— Exactly. On, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you look at the rise of the political uh, the political movements of these Islam of these radical Islamists, and they're all based on 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 Western Western theories of of fascism. It's it, exactly. when Christopher Hitchens exactly. called it Islamo fascism, he was criticized, but I think he had his finger on it. He did. I don't like the word because it's too. Long, yeah. But um, I do think he's right. I mean, look, I, I mentioned this to you in our email exchange this morning. Yeah. 
I, I'm a student of, he doesn't talk to me anymore because I was a Trump supporter in 2016, but I was very close for a period of time with Professor Jer- Joshua right. Barabchik, right. who wrote a great book called Heaven on Earth. Yep. And in his class, which was based on his book, of course, in his class he had what he called the tree of socialism. Yep. And he said that all of the isms of the 20th and now 21st centuries, whether it be fascism, communism, Maoism, or even Islamism, Nazism, Baathism, all of those isms, they're all derived from the same socialist yep. mentality. That's right. And, and so you're right. Islamism today, there's so much heavy mixture with socialist, Marxist ideas. As I note in my article at 1945, Seth, um, the, the whole name, Al-Qaeda, the base, right. as it's translated right. to, that is a Leninist concept. Right, right. That's like a cadre. Like a exactly right. Like it's a cadre. A yep. Yeah. And, and as I note, disturbingly, in my, my piece, actually Bin Laden kind of won. Because if you look at everything from the moment we invaded at Iraq in 2003, through now to what we did in Afghanistan, what, two or three years Yep. Did we fade out with you? Do we still have you? Well, <laughs> we lost you just at the moment that we're ending. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. We lost you just... And, and, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, ahead. And, and basically, you know, Bin Laden kind of won because yeah. of the Vanguard model. Right, the Vanguard. Brandon, thank you, brother, for being with us today. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your scholarship. Thank you, sir. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. I'll be back with a final thought. Well, welcome back, and thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us uh, as we were um, commemorating uh, what transpired, uh, what took place, what happened, what was done to us uh, 22 years ago in the aftermath. I remember that song so well. We were all, uh, in those days, people were much more glued to their TVs. We didn't have uh, smartphones. Hard to remember that period of time, but we watched the Country Music Awards where Alan Jackson debuted that song shortly after 9-11. And that became our anthem as a country for quite some time. Uh, The lacrimal, the sad response, the mourning, the mournful response, which was appropriate. And there was an interesting trajectory in the American culture. Of course, first mourning, the tremendous loss, uh, self-reflection, of course, the the recombination of families, of course, uh, the the forces uh, in America that brought us more together as a people, as one nation. Um, And then we prayed. First we mourned, then we prayed, and then we fought. And the next anthem became Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White, Blue about seven or eight months later. Um, Country music was such a help in those days in getting us through the emotions we were all going through. Uh, And um, the forces of composition fell apart pretty quickly. Um, I remember uh, that... All, all those things that we talked about that created the unity uh, in America in those days, we were documenting them, Bill Bennett and I. We spent a lot of time on this stuff. And then they fell apart uh, pretty much by February of uh, 2002 because politics, the visceral hatred. Um, then you had such nonsense coming out right ahead of the 04 elections like Michael Moore's mockumentary. Fahrenheit 911, and uh, all the Democratic literati showed up at the debut in Washington, 
the debut of that film, and it was an awful, awful movie uh, with so many inaccuracies in it. It was That's why I call it a mockumentary, not a documentary. But anyway, uh, taking us down those memories, uh, we, we proposed to overcome what Brandon Weikert suggested that we've never really learned the lessons. We proposed a, um, there is now, thank God, a museum of com- the victims of communism. Uh, there are a lot of different Holocaust museums. We proposed a, holoca- uh, we proposed a, a terrorism museum. It never got built. Uh, but uh, back in the pages of National Review, you can read it. It was called Never Again Again. And boy, uh, there would be enough to fill many of them. Uh, because memory truly is, as Elie Wiesel, at the heart of our redemption. So help, thank you for helping memorialize with us today, folks. Thank you, David. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.